Hey friends, this is Caitlin Beatty. Roxy and I are delighted to be back for a special summer series of Saved by the City. And for this four-part series, we will really be talking about the topic of celebrity in the church. You might say that we have a critical view of the role that celebrity plays in the church. I recently wrote a book called Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. And we thought we'd take this special summer series to draw out some of the themes that I really didn't get to delve into as much as I wanted to in the book. So for the next four episodes, join us as we dive into the topic of celebrity in the church. Roxy, what is the strangest thing you've ever seen during a church service? Where to start? Was it the pastor ripping off his shirt in an elaborate salvation metaphor? Maybe. (laughs) Or maybe the time my college pastor and his wife did a marriage talk and told us their estimate of how many times they figured they'd had sex over the course of their marriage? Might have been that one. Growing up, one time our pastor held a funeral service for a fallen leader in our church. I'm assuming this leader did not fall to his literal death. (laughs) Yes, to be clear, he did not fall off a cliff. He did something both wrong and illegal. And the way our pastor marked this was by putting a casket near the pulpit for this person's funeral. That's a vivid image. For Religion News Service, this is a special summer series of Saved by the City. I'm Roxy Stone, back from a hot, hot vacation in Miami. And I'm Caitlin Beatty, and I've just been sweating in my apartment by myself. Obviously, a big part of our church experience is about our pastors. Yeah, unfortunately, for better and worse, pastors really do kind of make or break Christian community, even when you don't want it to be that way. Mm -hmm. It it often is. Even if you say this isn't about the guy, it often becomes about that person and their leadership style. So obviously, in recent years, months, weeks, we kind of lost count of the stories of fallen, so to speak, fallen celebrity pastors and not fallen off a cliff, like doing bad things. They went flying off that moral cliff. (laughs) Yes, they did. (laughs) They took some people over the cliff with them, too, sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like if your pastor jumps off a cliff, will you jump off a cliff? Well, if your ego is tied to theirs, you really can't help but going over the side with them. Well, last season, we actually dedicated an entire episode to one such pastor and the fallout at Hillsong, New York City. One of our most popular episodes, sadly. I imagine it's been one of the most popular episodes we've done because people recognize those dynamics at their churches. Like, it's not just a story about Hillsong. One of the things that came up in our conversation about Carl Lentz and Hillsong was that his being put on a pedestal and being turned into a celebrity was bad for him, not just bad for the church. It was actually not good for the person being turned into a celebrity. Yeah. He was left alone at the top and it does something to you, but it doesn't seem to be a very healthy thing for your soul. No. And I think when people draw attention to this fact and kind of, you know, we might feel bad for Carl Lentz. It's not to say that he or others don't bear responsibility for what they did with that celebrity power, but it's just to say that they wouldn't be put on a pedestal without other people putting them there. 
which mm-hmm. means it's not enough to say, well, just get rid of the celebrity pastor and everything will be okay. Like there's something in the water probably at that church that puts people on these untouchable pedestals. Well, you've been writing about this. So what do you think is in the water? So at least in megachurch culture, they revolve around charismatic white men most of the time. There's a kind of default preference for male leadership, for leaders who have really amazing speaking skills. There's a kind of prioritization of preaching and teaching with less emphasis on spiritual groundedness, spiritual formation, the ability to offer pastoral care, because really good teaching and preaching and dynamic preaching attracts people to the church. Mm-hmm. It's what leads to church growth. There can also just be this weird dynamic where someone with a lot of, with like a strong personality and like maybe some egotistical issues, they start to believe that they are selected by God or like mm-hmm. they and God are like best buds. <laughs> and then other people start to believe that too. If you feel spiritually insecure or you're not sure where the church should go and this person comes in and kind of claims to speak for God or to be closer to hearing the Holy Spirit or to be hand-selected or anointed or something, it can be really easy just to believe that and kind of put your trust in that person as a mouthpiece because it offers some measure of security and leadership. You know, I've studied this a lot over the years as well, both as a as a journalist and then also as a social researcher. I mean, uh, when I was working at Barna, we had like a whole pastor panel mm. that we would survey regularly. And I think there's there is a lot of unhealthiness in that role, a ton of burnout, mm-hmm. a lot, a lot, a lot of loneliness. I mean, I would say that was one of the number one things that we would hear is just how lonely pastors were. Mm-hmm. They felt like They didn't really have any friends, certainly not at the church. They didn't have people that they could just be honest with Mm -hmm. and vulnerable with because if it was anybody at church, it was like, but you're a man of God. Like you can't, you like that puts your job in jeopardy to be like, I, my marriage is struggling or I'm having a hard time in this and this way that they get to a point where they feel like like they can't it's actually maybe even dangerous for them to talk about those things. Yeah, almost like we don't want a pastor who's human and as soon as he mm-hmm. starts to tell us things that suggest that he is you know, struggling or <laughs> is, you know, not able to handle the pressures in some way or another. Like, we're disappointed. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, we thought you were a superhuman. We Mm -hmm. wanted a superhuman to be able to lead us. You're supposed to have all the answers. You're supposed to be the one that we who are struggling turn to to give us, like, guidance and direction. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's it's isolating. It's lonely. It's also, like, just builds in, like, by default, sort of no accountability because who can they be accountable to in all of these ways? I can imagine for a lot of pastors, there's there are very few places to turn to just be human. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about like sexual impropriety or financial impropriety or like various addictions, I have to think that actually in a lot of those cases, the core issue is loneliness and then mm-hmm. not being able to handle the loneliness and kind of in isolation come these other <clears throat> Dynamics that 
will offer like a temporary solve or a feeling of intimacy, you know. I'm thinking about a few you know, high-profile instances where I can imagine that the celebrity pastor was truly lonely and isolated and put on a pedestal probably way too early in their ministry mm-hmm. and like set oh, up to so fail. Mm-hmm. But then I think there are probably some narcissistic, like truly diagnosable narcissistic yeah. tendencies as well. It's not to say that narcissists don't deserve love, but like. But maybe not a pulpit. But maybe not a pulpit. <laughs> and then when you have that kind of personality bent or style and it's used to harm other people and to like mm-hmm. leave a body count, you know, I'm just, I just don't understand why we keep giving these guys opportunities when the writing is on the wall that they are. It's overused. It's an overused word, but toxic is the word that comes to mind, you know? I do know. (laughs) As someone who's had some experience with a a narcissistic leader, not a pastor, but a boss, like, it is amazing the pretzels that you twist yourself in to sort of justify Mm. that toxic environment if you believe in the mission, you know? And I think Mm -hmm. that's what happens in so many churches is it's Mm -hmm. like, these guys are super charismatic and they build something great and nobody wants to jeopardize it. Nobody wants to lose it, you know, mm-hmm. and the cost starts to feel worth it. Like people have to enable that kind of yes. behavior at such a large church. I mean, it just, it just does not happen just because the pastor is a certain way. It's because mm-hmm. the system is built to support that, mm-hmm. but it's almost always by a lot of well-meaning people who really think that that's the only way to keep the church successful mm-hmm. to to keep their continue jobs to maintain what they've built to keep their jobs or a sense like god must be blessing this mm-hmm. like god, you know, like well god is in the mix in all of this and if it's growing it's being blessed and it's ultimately good yeah there are these leadership issues on the side that we all kind of have to deal with and it's unpleasant Essentially, the ends justify the means. If what it takes for us to grow and to attract people is to put this narcissistic pastor at the center of it and to allow him to kind of run roughshod over people, well, I guess it's worth it if it serves the mission. We all have a pride about things that we've built. I just think it's really, really easy for anybody to start to believe their own hype in that way or to feel like I built this and nobody else could have or Mm -hmm. nobody else can build it the way I did. Or it's like there is the extreme example that we all want to avoid. And also, as you said, there's just something baked into the whole enterprise that makes a pastor feel a certain level of elevation above the rest of the church. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that even we, Roxy and Caitlin, need to be mindful of those dynamics. I mean, I'm kind of being tongue in cheek, but I'm... You can believe it. (laughs) I mean, I can't. I can't, really. can't either, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, anytime you're given a platform, whether it's the pulpit or the stage or, you know, up in front of a room, classroom, people are there to hear you speak and teach because mm-hmm. they want to, you know, they believe that you have something to offer. Of course, it's easy to attach a level of self-worth and identity and pride to that. You know, when we're all kind of sitting around with our friends and we're talking about like 
frustrations at work or frustrations with family or whatever. Like we all tell our own stories <laughs> that we're in the right, that we know how to do it, that our frustrations mm-hmm. are justified. Like, and I just think about that, how easy it is to do that in our own, just like in our personal lives. And so when I think about like a pastor that's being like pushed up against or, or mm-hmm. is encountering frustrations at a church that they're leading, like it's, they're going to tell themselves their own stories about why they're right. And it gets harder and harder the more you do that to hear pushback or to hear accountability or to accept like that you might be wrong or that you might be hurting people. Mm -hmm. You're saying we all believe our own hype on some level. On some level. Or we just do. I don't know. I think humility is hard. today has counseled hundreds of famous and formerly famous pastors who are on the brink. That's so often what you hear from, you know, victims of narcissistic abusers. Like, I just thought that there was no one that was closer to Jesus than yeah. than he was, you know. And this could be someone in a robe and a stole, or it could be someone in, you know, skinny jeans and a blazer. It, it doesn't really matter. And it's not really tradition dependent either, you know. It's just that we're looking for people who are holy, I think, in our society. I, I mean, I think we're looking for touch points to the sacred. Chuck DeGroat is an expert on spiritual formation and author of When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. We'll be joined by Chuck right after we tip our hats to the organization that makes this all possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. For the best in religion reporting, visit religionnews.com. And we'll be back with a brand new season of Saved by the City this fall. If you like what we're doing and want us to keep doing it, let us know by giving us a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Before we jump into season four, I wanted to share the good news that Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Profits Are Hurting the Church is now out. It's in the world. It's out there. Yay. You can get it right away. If you care about healthy churches and healthy church leaders who don't believe their own hype, this book is for you. If you buy the book through Baker Bookhouse, you get 40% off plus free shipping. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Today's guest is Chuck DeGroat, professor of pastoral care and spirituality at Western Seminary and author of the book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. Hi, Chuck. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, Chuck. It's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, Caitlin, Roxy. To write a book on narcissism in the church, particularly in the pulpit, is to have seen it enough to think this is a trend, this is a big deal. What are the unique burdens on a pastor? Like, is it that the pastorate attracts narcissists or that the pastor pastorate turns people, forms them into narcissists or elevates yeah. those 
qualities in people as you've done this yeah. work? Like, what do you think? Is it the the chicken or the egg there? Yeah, I mean, or maybe it's maybe it's both, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's it's a longer conversation, but I think we're swimming in complex cultural waters, right? And this isn't a new phenomenon. I often say, you know, the, the narcissism conversation really does go back to Genesis 3. Um, look at the stories of scripture. Look at the stories of egocentricity and grandiosity, entitlement. Uh, they're all there, right? But I do think that th- what people are pointing out is this kind of unique, say, 20, 25, 30-year span of time that we've been living in, right, where we've seen this rise in church planting and this kind of caricature of a pastor narcissist. I know a person, by the way, who wrote a book on platform and and uh, celebrity recently. Her name is Caitlin. Uh, there is this phenomenon that some of us have been teasing out uh, where there there is this kind of new addiction to to platform, to presence, to this kind of um, omnipresence across social media platforms, right? And this this need to be important, this need to be seen, that does feel different and I think is caught up in a kind of u- uniquely American, a, a uniquely sort of success-driven, up-and-to-the-right kind of cultural climate. I hear you saying that there have been people with narcissistic tendencies from time immemorial. (laughs) And also there are probably uniquely modern American dynamics that fuel pre-existing tendencies and perhaps bring out latent seeds of narcissism in aspiring pastors. If you're prone to care too much about what you look like, for example, I just hear that some people, that's a problem for them. I would never struggle with that. If you are then seeing your image projected onto a screen and you Mm -hmm. have multiple sites, so like tuning in every Sunday to watch you preach, you might start to become even more vain about what you look like and how you sound and how you present. That's right. That's right. And that that is that sense that it can narcissism can sort of grow on the job, which is mm-hmm. very interesting to get back to sort of what Roxy was saying. I mean, I've done I've done lots of assessments over the years and I've done assessments on younger men in particular who uh, where there was a kind of latent narcissism that I've seen explode in in ministry as they found themselves in let's say a church planting context where there's there's this sense of um, I've, I've got to build this bigger, better, stronger, faster. I've got to hit these markers. And I'm beginning to get this feedback where this kind of latent narcissism becomes realized in a way that uh, does express itself in this debris field of staff who are hurt by interpersonal dynamics, people who are bullied. That piece of it is is really tricky for someone like me who likes to catch this on the front end, right? And mm-hmm. and can't always because it is it is expressed and and amplified within the ministry context. What do you think are some of the unique burdens maybe on these more celebrity pastor types? These these types who have churches either that they grew themselves or that they yeah. stepped into that are in some ways uh, built around them and also like do we need to just blow up that model or can it work? Mm. Yeah, it doesn't take long to convince me that certain models need to be blown up. And I do think we're living in a season reckoning where where we're seeing a lot of dying of, of old paradigms and old models. You know, I've just in the last six months, I've sat with any number of uh, church planting 
uh, network leaders who are rethinking church planting from the from the bottom up. And I think there's mm-hmm. immense immense pressure on certain kinds of pastors today, particularly in this world of, of sort of new networks that have been generated, competition, you know, in this kind of a uniquely American capitalistic kind of church planting world where there's a competition for dollars, where there are these icons, these su- sort of successful icons of, of church planting and, and, you know, mega church fame that seem to have done it successfully, where you have to sort of live up to you know who that person is, and I and I think per- particularly because we've been living in a kind of church planter centric kind of paradigm or model for the last 20, 20, 30 years, right? Where where there are these metrics, you've got to get the church to this size, and you've got this much money, and you've got this much time to get the church to this size, so that you can mm-hmm. particularize it, and because money's going to run out by year three, and if you don't hit this metric and this metric and this metric, and by the way, if your church is only about two fifty, you're really not that successful. Right. Um, that's you know, which is really sad, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. I think that that does contribute to the pressure that you're talking about, Roxy. And I can imagine, you know, like a young, dynamic person coming out of seminary and wanting influence or wanting ministry success, maybe feeling like, mm. well, these people have been successful. Look at how much their churches have grown. So I guess yeah. I need to kind of fit a certain mold, I also feel this pressure to conform to almost a persona, you know, and then you get into a kind of split between the true self and the false self and a kind of performance, like a performing a role in a church. And does that come up in your, in your work with pastors who are coming to you, kind of the internal conflict that internal conflict is is big, you know, and it doesn't really they're not they don't even become aware of it until some years in or until that conflict has has resulted in a larger conflict, right, or some crisis in their lives. It's interesting, Caitlin, because my experience is that those who go through seminary at least have three years of of some having to live in kind of the ordinariness of being in classes with others and and um, having to negotiate all sorts of different issues. I see more of a problem among those who are coming up within networks who don't have as much training. Let's just say, mm-hmm. for example, um, the insurance adjuster who is an elder at the church and, you know, we're starting a multi-site, but he's a pretty good communicator, you know, and I, I think that mm-hmm. insurance adjuster Luke, you know, needs to be the site pastor. And then Luke, Luke has very little training and he's been an elder for about a year, you know, and Luke's like, oh, that feels really good. You're going to put me on a platform Mm. with 300 people, you know, and Luke has done very little inner work. And, and so now he finds himself sort of in this role where he's thrown into a position of influence and desperately clinging to the, the lead pastor who believes in him and doesn't want to cross the lead. You know, it leads to these really complicated dynamics uh, and I, I've seen two young, two immature men in particular get thrown into these places and roles uh, way too early. Mm-hmm. That's at least part of the problem, you know, this lack mm-hmm. of maturity and character development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, maybe a lack of inner work. What is some of the inner work that you encourage mm-hmm. pastors to do as they're training training to be pastors or in the work that you're doing to sort of salvage? That's a good question. I mean, I think I used to think that 
get them into therapy and get them to understand true self and false self and things like that. And then, of course, the Enneagram. If we just all knew our Enneagram, that would solve all <laughs> the world's problems. And then it, Wait, things would be okay. you're saying it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. We still haven't uh, done an Enneagram episode. Yeah, We're going to have to yeah, at one of these times. Yeah. Maybe it should be <laughs> why this isn't going to solve the world's problems despite right. our right. ongoing obsession. Right, but, right. <laughs> so so it, I think that there was a time for me, you know, let's say in, in the early 2000s when I was doing this work, when I thought, yeah, just a bit of insight, some therapy will help. You know, I, now I've seen that used in ways where – uh, some of the pastors that I've worked with have done a lot of therapy and they know their Enneagram and they're Myers-Briggs and they're this and they're strength finders and they've done this and they've been to that seminar and this, and they have all kinds of resources and yet they are still narcissistic. And so, you know, as, as a number of us are thinking more and more about character development and how that, uh, how that works, I mean, I don't see any, any other way of growing in character and maturity other than within a, a community of women and men who are more mature, are more vulnerable, who will hold you to account. And what we find is a lot of these young men and older men are not in communities like that. They don't have people around them. They haven't had that furnace of transformation, so to speak, you know, that community of, of people who would hold them and reflect back to them what they see. And I, I don't know any other way of, of growing apart from being in a community where, it, at least what I've experienced in the past is, Chuck, let me give you some feedback about how you're mm -hmm. showing up, how we experience you, how that hurts us when you show up in the way that you show up. Mm -hmm. There, There's very little of that. And, and by the way, I can tell pretty quickly when I do this work with these men, because when I begin to give just a little bit of feedback to them, and I begin very gently, you can tell this is the first anyone's ever, and they're highly defended, right? I mean, they've mm -hmm. just never, ever learned to have that kind of interpersonal back and forth uh, and to integrate their shadow side, so to speak, you know, the parts of them that are bullying and overbearing, hurtful and uh, mm -hmm. unempathetic and so forth. Yeah. So this is part of maybe the problem with the model then is that these pastors end up really isolated on top without people right. who they can trust to go to, to be vulnerable with, without people speaking into their lives, without holding them accountable in a way that has any kind of real heft. I think that's right. Yeah. And I think uh, inevitably when you hear these stories of these mostly men with large platforms and uh, who have found their way into some trouble, have developed some sort of reputation, they will say, I got my boys around me. You know, I've got my, you know, I've got my relationships. Um, but they're not the kinds of relationships that I think that you and I would consider to be uh, truly vulnerable and healthy where there's a two-way conversation, you know, uh, and th it's, that's what's lacking. You put your, your finger on it, Roxy. Yeah, I think one thing that you just touched on, Chuck, is something that seems to be the appearance of accountability mm. without vulnerability. Like, I think most pastors know by now I should be held accountable. You know, I'm, I know I'm supposed to submit to an elder board or a team of advisors right. or a denominational body or something. Mm -hmm. But when you start to dig into the actual inter interpersonal dynamics within those accountability yeah. groups, it's either... Yeah mutual ego feeding, or we are friends, but the, the kind of undercurrent of our friendship is 
I know I can get something from you and you can get something from me. It's like a mutual mm-hmm. power sharing. It, it looks good for us to be together, mm-hmm. which you, you'll find those dynamics in any kind of community. But I think it can be harder to spot in Christian circles because on the appearance, yeah. it looks like something good. It looks like ministry partnership or yeah. brothers getting together. And I, 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 I just have to note, we are talking about brothers. We haven't yeah. talked about women yet. <laughs> and maybe we don't need to. I don't know. But there is a gender element here in the room as well. Yeah. Yeah. There is an old boys club. Uh, I have seen narcissism uh, escalated in, in women. It's much more rare. Uh, I think in large part because women haven't been given power in many of these spheres, you know, um, flip the script and give women power. Maybe we, we're having a different conversation, but I think, you know, mm-hmm. at this point we're seeing this in men and there are, is this old boys club. And, and I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he talks about the difference between uh, general confession and specific confession, you know, this kind of general, like, bro, I, I, I drink a little bit too much whiskey every now and then, you know, that kind of general confession versus, I was very condescending to that woman in that elder meeting uh, today, and uh, I need to apologize for that. Like something that gets specific to what's showing up right in the moment, you know? And and I think that's a a lot harder and a lot more humiliating. Mm -hmm. What people will say is, but I thought... I thought from his sermons, he was such an honest pastor. He would mm-hmm. say these things in his sermons about, you know, how he and his wife had marriage problems 15 years ago and, you know, how he didn't change the diapers as much as he should have, which doesn't get at all at how he's now bullying people in staff meetings week in and week out, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, so, it's performative and it's always past it's, yes. tense. They've always yeah. fixed it. They've overcome it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Performative is such a good word. Past tense. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I've also certainly noticed in, I think Caitlin and I can both speak to this, in reporting on some of these churches that have blown up after a, some kind of pastoral crisis, that when you start digging, you realize like, yes, it was problematic with the pastor, but also there was like the system put in place Mm -hmm. to support all of it, to support him in all of these ways. There were lots of yes men. There were lots of, you know, a collective sort of agreement that this pastor could in some ways do whatever they wanted. And you write in your book that churches and ministries can adopt a sort of collective narcissism. Yeah. Can you talk about that and what are the signs of that? Yeah, this is so important because I th- I think that sometimes when I when I've been brought in and I don't do as much of this work anymore, but when I've been brought in, for instance, to identify uh, problems within a system, let's say, right, or problems with a lead pastor, and I've identified perhaps the abusiveness of a lead pastor, and I've named that, and oftentimes they'll think that the solution is to simply let that lead pastor go, and and then I'll say, well, now the the really hard work is left to be done. And no, 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 we're, we're good. We've, you know, we're, we're Mm -hmm. done. We've fired the, Mm -hmm. no, it's, it's actually within the system. And Gerald Post, who's a former CIA profiler, does some really interesting work on this. He, he talks about collective narcissism within the dynamic of the, the mirror hungry narcissist, you know, so the narcissist who uses his congregation as this kind of mirror 
uh, to reflect back to him everything he wants to hear about himself uh, that is good and beautiful and remarkable and the ideal hungry follower and the ideal hungry follower is looking for something in the narcissistic leader, looking for some sense of like borrowed power or security or belonging. And, and so inevitably, people who find themselves within the orbit are there because they feel good about uh, what it's like to be on staff at such and such Bible church or what it's like to be in the orbit of such and such, you know, big platform pastor mm-hmm. And they're not really they're not really aware of those dynamics. They're not really aware of how that's working mm-hmm. itself out. And they're, it, all all they can say is, "No, this is just the Holy Spirit is doing really incredible things here." And it takes some time for them to begin to name that. No, actually, I've I've become a, a participant in this at some level. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm I'm complicit in the system. I'm, I don't need to own everything that the lead pastor needs to own, but I've certainly participated in this because I've I plugged in for my own sense of power, mm. security, belonging, participation. If you have a theology where you think of the pastor or the pastor has cultivated an image of the pastor is closer to God. <laughs> yes. Or has a kind of spiritual insight or or superiority that and then you as a lay member feel insecure about your relationship with God or your own spiritual goodness attaching to that person who has become kind of almost godlike in their position. You understand why that's so attractive and then just so incredibly harm. It can be so incredibly harmful. Yeah. That's so often what you hear from, you know, victims of, narcissistic abusers like i just thought that there was no one that was closer to jesus than yeah. than he was you know and this could be someone in a robe and a stole or it could be someone in you know skinny jeans and a blazer it, it doesn't really matter and it's not really tradition dependent either you know it's mm-hmm. just that we're looking for people who are holy i think in our society i, I mean i think we're mm-hmm. looking for touch points to the sacred and we certainly find those in in these kinds of pastors who will abuse that that privilege One thing we've seen kind of a lot of lately is a very predictable trajectory when these pastors maybe fall in whatever way, whether, you know, that's a sexual sin or abuse or whatever it is. It seems like the trajectory is sort of they go to some kind of counseling, they go to therapy, they, they are gone for six months out of the spotlight. And then it's not too long and they're sort of back out again and restored into leadership or taking on some yeah. kind of new role or writing a book about their redemption story. So <laughs> <laughs> you seem to have a specific instance in mind. Nope. It's happened that many times. <laughs> it's true. Um, it is a trend. So is that good? Is that a redemption story? <laughs> when you see that, what would you need to be like, I believe that that was a true restoration. And should yeah. that person be back in the spotlight again? Yeah, I I do think that there's this kind of bastardization of grace, right? Within uh, this theology of grace within some circles where, you know, isn't it Luther who wrote a letter to Melanchthon um, uh, years and years ago, right? uh, Even if you were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times in a day, isn't the grace of God big enough for even you, you know, that kind of, and there's this sense of, isn't the Mm. grace of God big enough even for me, this big bad sinner who, you know, I bullied some staff members and I, yeah, I looked at some pornography, but the grace of God is big enough for me. And, and, 
and they write their redemption story. They're back in it, right? But I think that there's a kind of cheap, cheap grace there. I mean, what I want to see is the kind of costly grace that invites them into a process of real growth and real change and real transformation, right? That takes time. I've, I've only seen it take time. We know, we know with personality disorders, we know if you're elevated on the narcissistic spectrum, we're not talking about weeks. We're not talking about months. We're not talking about a mm-hmm. medication. We're talking about years for mm-hmm. real personality change to happen, right? Because we're talking mm-hmm. about sophisticated psychic de- de- defenses within someone, right, that need to be relaxed. And so, like, when I'm involved, I'll say, here's grace for you. Ten years of stepping out of the spotlight. Let's just let's just start with ten years, you know? And mm-hmm. that's a really um, spacious and gracious place for you to... Uh, learn to uh, look at your own story, to love again, to grow in empathy for others, for yourself, to realize how you've been hurt, to realize how you've hurt others. Now, truth be told, I only see very few engage uh, engage that. Well, as we wrap up, maybe we can end on a on a positive note. <laughs> Who's a pastor that you've either known or know of who sort of has modeled a more healthy way to pastor to be Christ-like from that? From that pulpit, what were they like? What are some? What were some of the qualities that you saw that helped them combat that sort of drift toward narcissism that the pulpit can sometimes encourage? Yeah, there have been several pastors that I've known like that. There are two words that feel really important to me when I'm doing my pastoral training, when assessing, counseling, and those two words are curiosity and humility. When I find pastors who are both curious. And, and humble, really, really humble, not a kind of faux hum- humility, but really humble. Well, they can be gifted, by the way. They can be inspiring preachers, and they can have uh, Twitter followings, and they might even write a book. Or, but there's this, this you know, baseline, there's this sense of they know who they are. There's a connection to that true self that Caitlin was getting at earlier. There's a, a an integrity, and what you mm-hmm. hear from people around them who know them is he operates, she operates with humility and curiosity. There are a good number of pastors like that out there, and I think plenty of stories to tell. Yeah, they just don't demand as much attention. It would just be so refreshing to hear someone with a great amount of spiritual authority who people have put on a pedestal but kind of consciously or unconsciously say, I might be wrong about this. And that, uh-huh. like, to have a leader that is humble enough to admit that they are flawed like everybody else, even yeah. while they have all these great skills is just such a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you for modeling curiosity and humility in our mm. conversation today, mm. Chuck. And just thank you for delving into a hard but really important topic with us. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I've long admired your work and it's fun to, to get a chance to to talk today. Yeah, it's good to see you too. I love this podcast. I think it's such a great idea. Thanks for the work that you do and for your book, Caitlin. Yeah, I think it's going to be really, really significant in this season. Thanks, Chuck. Writing your book, Caitlin, I know that there were obviously a lot of red flags and warning signals that you were writing about in terms of bad church culture or a church culture that sort of had a celebrity 
type style. But what were some of the more healthy signs that you found in churches? Or like if you were to sort of offer Mm -hmm. like what is an antidote to this like Mm -hmm. celebrity status of pastors? What were some of the findings that you had? I feel like the easy answer is accountability, people who seek accountability. Right. One nuance to this is, of course, you can kind of perform accountability, as we talked about with Chuck, or you can kind of Mm -hmm. sign off on it verbally. But when you get down to the actual dynamics, there's not a lot there. So I would say, you know, pastors, Mm -hmm. people going into ministry who want that kind of feedback, like who want to know from the people around them, how do you experience me? There is free, open channels of communication for you to catch my blind spots, essentially, for you to notice things in my character or my leadership style that I may not be seeing. There is something about screens, and I don't, I don't mean to say that mm. churches can't have a multimedia approach or share their pastor's sermons online or you know, broadcast in some way. I do think that making that central to a ministry kind of Mm -hmm. can reflect back to a pastor, like you're the main event and people are flocking to hear you as the main Mm -hmm. event as like a form of entertainment or spiritual consumption. So in that, just wanting to see pastors prioritize in-person relationship with other staff members and with people in the church over the whole multimedia circus. Mm-hmm. And then, I, I mean, you know, people like Eugene Peterson and Dallas Willard and Stanley Hauerwas and many people even before them have been writing about the primacy of a pastor as a shepherd, <laughs> like as someone who is mm-hmm. deeply knows mm-hmm. and cares for people in their church and understands that is the primary right. role. And so looking for mm-hmm. church leaders who... I mean, it's easy to say, but just are really who really care about people, right? Who don't want to do anything that would harm people in their church, and if they are doing something in, unintentionally, wanting to be proactive about correcting that and and repairing what's been harmed. Mm-hmm. And we could stand to have more women. Not that women are flawless. Yeah, that was a, a takeaway I got from talking to Chuck, mm-hmm. actually. Well, in your own experiences and observations, what are some green flags that you that you look for? This is tough in Protestant culture and the way we built it, but I think um, deprioritizing the sermon in terms of the like liturgical experience mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. worship, like there's all these other things that happen on a Sunday morning or that could happen. And if the sermon was just like one of equal weight with others, mm-hmm. I have never been part of a church like this necessarily. I think the church I'm in now is, has some aspects of this, but I do think a, a flattened mm. leadership hierarchy and not just like elders over a pastor, but I mean like an actual team of pastors that maybe speak mm. just as often that have like a mm-hmm. rotating teaching style that they, you know, share in both the preaching and the shepherding aspects of the church. I am personally grateful to have been mostly in churches. There have been a couple exception issues, not a word, but most of the churches I've been in feel 
personal grounded, the pastor is is available for care. And -hmm. I know that there are a lot out there. And unfortunately, it's the big celebrity Mm -hmm. churches that fall in the most dramatic of ways. Yeah, like a mudslide off a cliff. And we're back to the metaphor of of this episode. But it, you know, it works. We're sticking to it for a reason. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Winter. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.